good morning. You guys are glad you're here, aren't you? Well, let's acknowledge the one who's summoned us here. And I don't know why you think you're here. Maybe it's last minute decision or somebody invited you, but bottom line, every one of us in these auditoriums, wherever we're watching from, we have been summoned. So let's go ahead and talk to the one who summoned us in order to teach us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that is the summary of our heart's cry. Oh, Jesus, will you help me now? And a lot of us can relate with that at different levels, but I ask that we would go far deeper than asking you to help us with a particular circumstance or stress point that's immediately in front of us. Give us the courage, give us the insight, give us the instruction to enable us to let that become a heart cry in which we ask you to help us with the restoration of our humanity and the health of our imageness and the experience of the life that you want to lavish on us. I ask this in the name of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Amen. Well, since we're on a sidewalk poet kick, Last week I shared with you from Paul, who's in Winter Park on Park Avenue. He's writing them by hand. This one is from Pearl Street in Boulder, Colorado. A friend of mine who's an attorney. We've been involved in some study and conversation about our hearts and the importance of paying attention to the longings of our hearts. And he comes across this guy who had a typewriter. If you don't know what that is, they, they uncover typewriters in archaeological digs every now and then. And so this guy would write the poem. He said, just tell me the title, I'll write it out. And so uh, Jeff gave him the title, Longings of the Heart. So this is what this guy wrote on the spot on his typewriter. The brain is second. It's the heart that gives the orders. Gives cravings to the bones, the blood. And the brain attempts to gather the armies, often Keystone Cop ready, to build the castle, but using shingles for siding and floorboards for the roof? Too much confusion. All the heart really wanted was a meal fit for a king, a warm place to kiss, music to give love a dance and a chance. Not a castle, but certainly not a castle built upside down. And this is the problem with the longings of the heart. They're usually so simple, but they're made such a mess of by a head full of clowns. He wrote that on the spot. But did you hear the first two lines? The brain is second. It's the heart that gives the orders. Is that true? I mean, if you're looking at the heart and equating with the heart with our emotions, that as many people do, but I don't believe that's correct and we'll explain why in just a minute. It's not true. Our emotions don't give the orders, but if you're going to the deeper meaning of the heart, it is true. It's not just our brains that determine the dance, but our hearts do. We'll unpack that a little bit, but first let me review kind of where we are. 
Let's deal with all the mirrors. If you weren't here last week, we are all Imago Dei. We are all to be reflections of God. And every human being is to one degree or another. But because of the fall, there's distortion in the image caused by rebelliousness and the resulting distortion. The beauty of the gospel is that we're forgiven for the rebellion that caused the distortion as well as the distortion, but then this growth process, maturing process, or one of those old school words, the sanctification process happens the rest of our lives in which Jesus begins to take away some of the distortion. That that process isn't completed until the great day. But between now and then, each year, hopefully I'm reflecting Jesus more. I'm reflecting God to the people around me. And what the distributed church is are these communities of mirrors in different locations, where you're watching right now, wherever you might be, in this place, in your neighborhood, we are to reflect to God. And it's a growth process. Our core text last week that I told you I'd come back to, Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Since you've taken off your old self, your old humanity, this humanity that, that, that is, is so distorted with its practices, and you've put on the new humanity, the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image, in the icon of its creator. So there's this gradual restoration of our imageness. Well, in that passage, you back up to five, five verses earlier, verse four of Colossians three, he talks about, Paul talks about Christ who is our life. And then in verse 1, that sets off why he's teaching this this passage anyway. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. In other words, since you were alive, here's what you do. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So there's this notion in that passage of our image being renewed, this notion of Christ being our life, all under the capstone of of doing something with our hearts. So what's this connection between this notion of image and life and heart? And we talked about that equation last week. Do you remember this equation? My imageness is a result of life and heart. Remember that? That was just seven days ago. Do you remember that? Otherwise, it's going to be a really long message because we've got to do last week's and then this week's. Our imageness will determine our health as a human being. Your fulfillment when the alarm clock rings has everything to do with the degree to which we are imaging and reflecting who God is to the people around us in our relationships. But that imageness is dependent on two realities, life and heart, me being alive, and the scriptures don't refer, God doesn't just look at a human being to determine whether you and I are alive or not by whether our heart is beating and our lungs are breathing. It goes much deeper to that, deeper to, deep to the core of who we are as human beings. Am I alive or am I still dead in my trespasses and sins, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. It's life, what I refer to, it's what I call the book, Life with a capital L. It is at the core of the gospel. Jesus said, this is the life that I came to give you. He makes us alive. The way he makes us alive is from Ezekiel, the prophecy we looked at. He takes that heart of stone and he turns it into a heart of flesh. So when my, I get a new heart, I'm made alive, and that equips me for imaging God and being fulfilled. But it's not that simple as you and I know. Just because I'm alive in Christ doesn't mean I'm experiencing that life with a capital L. Just because I have a new heart doesn't mean I'm paying attention to it and and cultivating it. 
But I better learn because the difference between me experiencing that life of the capital or not has everything to do with my heart. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18, he says, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, hear this, due to the hardening of their hearts. So the condition of your heart and my heart is not indirectly related, it is directly related to our experience of this life with a capital L, this restoration of our humanity, and this advance and deepening of our imaging and reflecting and mirroring of God on this planet. So the heart is at the core, it's the engine, but what is it? A lot of people think it's an ancillary sidebar issue. So many people uh, in our culture and so many people in churches, we're illiterate when it comes to the heart. We don't talk about it much. We think it's a kid's word. It's for a sentimental purpose or, or it's kind of a juvenile connotation. No, 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 no. The heart is not sidebar. In fact, you go to your computer and do a little search on whatever computer program you have in your Bible. I, I did that. Looked up the word heaven, 596 times the word heaven appeared in my Bible. I looked up the word heart, and we think heaven's an important concept in the Bible. Heart, 783 times. But what is it? It's so important, but what is it? You know, and we can't quite put our finger on it, but we're all got a hunch. And we, we talk about the heart far more often than we realize. I mean, we'll refer to people as cold-hearted or I'm faint-hearted or she's broken-hearted or he's half-hearted or they're whole-hearted or light-hearted or hard-hearted. We'll talk about somebody experiencing a loss of heart or playing their heart out or having heartache or being heartless or that guy's got a bleeding heart or I, I cross my heart or my heart's in the right place or your heart's in your throat or we'll wear our heart on our sleeve. We'll talk from the bottom of our heart. We need to take heart. We need to eat our heart out. We get to the heart of the matter. And if you're from the South, bless your heart. We use this heart stuff all the time, but we don't have an understanding of what it, was, what it is. A couple of years ago, two brothers wrote a book. One brother is a cardiologist, the other is a therapist, Thomas and Stephen Amadon. The name of the book is The Sublime Engine, a biography of the human heart. The cardiologist brother traces the medical history of the understanding of the heart. The therapist brother it traces our understanding of the metaphorical heart. And it's fascinating. They, they, they say that those two came together probably most powerfully in the early eight, uh, 17th century. There was a king named King James, and then his son was uh, a king named King James. His son was King Charles. They had a doctor. They're, the king's physician was Sir William Harvey, who did extensive research on this notion of the heart. Back then, they, did, they didn't quite understand that the heart was the center of our life source physically. And while he was publishing some results and, and coming to that understanding, there was also at the very same time overlapping, I don't know if you've heard of him, a guy named Shakespeare. Wrote a couple of things. And Shakespeare, they said, elevated the heart to where it should be in the human journey. Over a thousand times in Shakespeare's works, he talks about the heart. Maybe the pinnacle of Shakespeare's heart exegesis was Antony and Cleopatra, Antony the Western heart and Cleopatra uh, the Eastern heart. 
But both conclusions are the heart is something, has something to do with the center and the core. But you know what? 17th century is not nearly far back enough, a thousand years earlier or so. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 19. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. My journey is going to look like my heart, whether I like it or not. Why? Because my heart is the core of who I am. It's, it's, not, it's not my emotions. In fact, you could visualize uh, a wheel, and the hub of that wheel is, is the heart. Put three spokes on there. One spoke is the, my mind. The other spoke is my emotions. Another spoke is my will. There's some people that are mind people, very cerebral. Others are emotional people, just real, real emotional in the way they interact with life. Other people are, are doers. And without the heart, being healthy will get out of balance in one of those areas. But when my heart is healthy, my emotions are, 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 are healthy, my relationships, my, my actions, my thinking. Because my heart, listen very carefully, is the core of me. Oswald Chambers said the best way to describe the biblical term heart is it refers to me. It's the essence of, of, of who I am. But it's not just the heart. My heart is the core of who I am. My heart is the core of who I am that interacts with the core of what my journey is all about. It's in my heart that, uh, that who I am is determined. So much about me is, originates in my heart. My love, my awareness, my fulfillment, my passion, my authenticity, my strength. The list can go on and on and on. Those are all heart words. It's my heart that turns me from a, being a spectator in my journey to a participant. And then you come into the realm of the gospel. And I mentioned a moment ago, it's not a kid thing. So often we think, well, the way to talk to, way, way to, talk to a child about the gospel is talk about the heart, receiving Jesus into my heart, and, but we sentimentalize it. No, no, no. There's nothing sentimental about that exhortation. Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, believe in your hearts that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's when you'll be saved. And then in verse 10, he repeats it. He wants to be very clear. It's with your heart you believe. Not just with your mind, describing to a doctrinal statement. Not just with your will, going with a behavioral pattern. Not just with your emotions, going with a little high on this particular Sunday or service. It's engaging from the core of who I am. Heartless Christianity is not biblical Christianity. Last week I talked about churches that seem dead and trace the reason of that is that we engage with Jesus' way and truth, but not life. Do you remember that? Don't discourage me, okay? I need, I need encouragement. We're good at relating with Jesus' way, behavior, as truth, doctrine. Both of those are necessary, but it wasn't best two out of three. We're to relate with him as life. That means our heart has to engage. It's why I wrote the book, Life with a Capital L. It's because of a crisis within the church where we've reduced the gospel either to a form of conduct or a doctrinal statement instead of a restoration of our humanity. But I didn't just write the book for the church at large. 
Actually, that wasn't my primary audience. My primary audience was three young men. The oldest is named Andrew. He's 25 years old, as a first lieutenant in the Air Force, graduated from the Air Force Academy, is stationed up in Alaska. The second young man is a young man named Joel. He's about to start his senior year at Colorado State University. He's a wrangler at a ranch up in the mountains this summer. The third young man is named Stephen. He's about to be a sophomore at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. He's working at the same ranch. I wrote the book for my three sons because I care about their hearts. And if I get hit in the parking lot, one of you runs over me after church today and you see me lying on the pavement there, I'll have a smile on my face. Not because I'm amused that you're such a bad driver, <laughs> but I'll have a smile on my face because I wrote this book as their legacy. It's a summary of the so what of the gospel that goes far beyond just getting us a ticket into heaven. I wrote the book because I take very seriously Ephesians chapter 6. We journey together as smaller faith communities and our families are one of those, our small groups, our distributed churches. And my calling with my sons in Ephesians 6 is not to exasperate them, but to lead them. And I was, I was illiterate for so long when it comes to the heart. I missed so much for so long. I didn't want them to do the same. In fact, a core part of the book is a chapter on the heart. It all has to do with me wanting to be obedient to Proverbs 23, verse 19. Listen, my son, be wise. Keep your heart on the right path. It's not just growing up, hey, would you keep the rules? Or would you just learn a couple of verses? Keep your heart on the right path. And I've modeled with them a posture of learning. It doesn't mean they're perfect like their dad. Uh, no. All of us, we all have successes and screw-ups. It's all mixed in together, but it's engaging with our heart throughout. And over time, the less distortion comes. And one of the key verses that I've hammered in with them is Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. I've done some extensive research into the Hebrew of that and combined it with my spiritual gift of clarifying the obvious. And do you know what above all else means? Above all else. That's deep, I know, but I have to stay simple. In fact, you know, I have three sons, but my wife will tell you she has four boys. So I just dive in with them and we figure that out. In fact, we have developed a phrase with them it was, a, it was an exhortation and encouragement that we used with each other based on that verse. Fight for your heart, fight with your heart. And we shortened it. F-F-Y-H, F-W-Y-H. Eight initials that I could text them before a big game. 
that I could put on a post-it note on their door when they're headed to school and I know they're dealing with a really difficult situation. That I could come alongside when they're struggling with the temptations that we all go through and need to be authentic about and just say, FFYH, FWYH, dude. In fact, just last night I texted them. FFYH, FWYH, they're all over the world, but they get it. One night we were gathered around a fire, the four boys, up in the Rockies and just having one of those fun dad-son chats and Andrew, the oldest, spoke up. Uh, I didn't quite under realize at first that this was all premeditated and planned. But he said, hey, Dad, you know, our whole fight for your heart, fight with your heart thing, uh, people don't do coat of arms anymore. You know, families used to have a coat of arms. What would you think if, if we did a coat of arms with FFYH and FWH, worked that in somehow? And I knew they were good at some designs and graphics and said, that'd be cool. Conversation went elsewhere, and then Andrew circled back around in a bit. He said, hey, Dad, come back, come back to that FFYH, FWYH thing. Um, said, Let's say we got a, a, a really cool coat of arms, you know, zero cheesiness. Uh, what would you think about us making a tattoo and getting it on our chest? And before I actually could gather my thoughts, he then followed it up with, and that's not all. If we do it, we want you to do it with us. I'll tell you something though, that moment I went far past whether to get a tattoo or not. My heart engaged. Because my sons had gotten it. Whether they got a tattoo or not was a different issue than the issue of them wanting and being willing to see every day of their lives, every morning when they wake up in the mirror, a reminder that above all else they should guard their heart. It's the wellspring of life. Some of you right now are grappling with that in deep ways. Others of you can't focus because you want to know, did you get the tattoo or not? And I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> you can look my boys up and ask them, and they won't tell you. Uh, I know their answer. We've talked about it. Their answer will be, hey, they'll say, get back to me in two weeks. I'll tell you if you can wait that long, and it is a, if it's an issue then. But in the meantime, what's happening on the outside of my chest is not nearly as important as what's going on inside yours. Above all else, guard your heart. I think I mentioned that my wife has four boys, not just three. Hence the Play-Doh up here. I've got two containers. This Play-Doh right here is new. I mean, there's just something about the smell of new Play-Doh, isn't there? I'm just having a moment, if you would forgive me. <laughs> and the boy in me is really pleased to be able to shape this and mold it. This Play-Doh 
somebody left a can open and it's crumbling and dry and uncooperative but this is pliable when I say the word guard you think hard and resolute let me tell you something those are not the same word I can be resolute but not hard resolute in my commitment to say God I want you to have my heart I want you to shape my heart because I realize the hardening of my heart will separate me from that life with a capital L which will dilute my imageness that undermines my fulfillment and sacrifices the effectiveness that we can be as a community of mirrors and it all has to do with me letting him shape me That's why Hebrews says, don't harden your hearts. Chapter three, verse eight, Psalm 81, verse 12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. First Peter chapter three, verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. That passage, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Don't harden them. You guys prayed just a few minutes ago. We all did. Thy will be done. Remember that? Come on, that was just 15 minutes ago. You... C.S. Lewis says there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Where God says, okay, you want it your way, you go that way. Harden your heart, but there will be consequences because that's not the way I designed you. Ezekiel. We looked at it last week. Chapter 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. But just because we have a heart of flesh as followers of Jesus doesn't mean that it can't get crusty. It's a daily intentionality, habits. It's instead of me taking the path of a, of a drop of water on a window pane, taking the path of least resistance, it's me choosing each day to cultivate heart habits that enable me to be shaped by Him, to start experiencing what that really looks like. What, what is it like for me to have the peace of Christ rule in my heart? And by the way, peace, the peace of Christ ruling in your heart, Colossians 3 there, the shalom of Christ. You look in the context, it's not just situational peace, it's peace in my heart. Him integrating, bringing wholeness, bringing fullness. I mentioned earlier that song, so Jesus help me now. Most of us will say, Jesus help me now, but we don't go deep enough. We need to say, Jesus help me, not just with the circumstance, but with the restoration of my humanity. So it's cultivating these hard habits intentionally. So let me give you some examples. I'll give you five hard habits 
that we did with our sons, we do in, in, in some of our communities together and some relationships that I have. And these are just five. Remember, 783 references to the heart in Scripture. You can come up with more than five. I'm just giving these to you, not to go in depth with them, but to give you an idea of what does a heart habit look like. And then get into the Word and start discovering heart habits, saying, God, because I want my heart to be this, not this. Because I want to live. I don't want to reflect you. So let's go through what are these hard habits that we can intentionally do. Here's one. It says, above all else, guard your heart. So each of these hard habits is to guard me against something. The first one, Scripture. A hard habit of Scripture. And I'm guarding against a number of things when I, I, I eat the Word of God. But one big thing I'm guarding against is relativism. Our culture is fraying at its very core because of relativism, because of a, you go your own way. That's where your heart can be free. The song earlier, he's saying, hey, I was all wild and free, but my heart was like a skipping stone. When we go wild and free, we move outside of the parameters in which God can lead us. That wild and free begins to be something that's imprisoning and hardens our hearts. And it all has to do with me letting the word of God shape me. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. This is right after, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Here's the primary way. Let the logos of Christ, the word of Christ, dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Psalm 119, I've, I've, I've hidden your word in my heart. It's not just me getting Bible facts. It's me letting his heart shape the core of who I am so that the way I think, the way that I feel, the way that I act is impacted. There's a second heart habit. I'll call it single-heartedness. You're saying that's not a word. You haven't figured out now, just make up words if they're convenient. Last week, imageness was our new word for the day. Today, it's single-heartedness. I mean, there's single-mindedness, yes, and there's whole-heartedness. I like them both, but I like single-hearted better. And single-heartedness has everything to do with guarding against the dissipation that happens when I develop a hard heart, start going through the motions, and I wake up in three weeks, three months, or three decades, and I say, what happened to my life? And it's because I dabbled in a walk with Jesus. Just over here, you ever seen a child, a toddler in a toy room playing with this toy? This is awesome. Whoa, this is, looks really cool. Whoa. That's too often me in my walk with Jesus when I'm not single-hearted and saying, above all else, I want you. Psalm 86, verse 11 and 12, teach me your way, O Lord, and I'll walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart a singular heart, that I may fear your name. I'll praise you, O Lord, my God, with how much of my heart? All of it. You know what a flexitarian is? You ever heard of one? It's somebody who's a vegetarian most of the time until they come across a good burger place. <laughs> then they become a flexitarian. Let's be a little flexible here. And so often it's us flitting away from this to that instead of singularly pursuing Christ. David White is a British poet. He came over to corporate America and wrote a book called The Heart Aroused. And he was about surviving corporate America as a poet. He talks about visiting an, a, a monk one time. He was exhausted and he wanted counsel. And the monk told him, he says, 
More often than you realize, the anecdote for exhaustion is not rest, but wholeheartedness. Because when our heart gets divided, then all of a sudden, we lose the vibrancy. It's a third hard habit. We'll call it supplication. It's an old word. I love it. Not saying prayers, supplication. And that's guarding my heart from self-sufficiency, or probably more correctly, the illusion of self-sufficiency. We're not self-sufficient, but we like to think we are. The more that I'm supplicating and praying and calling out to God, the more aware I am that I am not the one that's governing the heartbeats in my chest and the number of days left in my life. I'm not living under the illusion that I'm captain of my own soul and the master of my own ship. I'm acknowledging that I am created, not creator, and that I'm created for a purpose, and that's to image God. And so I cry out to him. There's a very big difference between word praying and heart praying. This past week, Arlene, I had dinner with a couple of dear friends reflecting on the season they've just come through that has been excruciating. And my friend, the husband, he said, you know, it's in that season that I learned a different kind of praying. I prayed from the heart. He said, some of my best praying you couldn't even make sense of the words. What's the psalmist say? Psalm 62, verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. And say a nice little prayer every now and then. No. Pour out your hearts to him. For God is our refuge. After the service, some of you need to come down and pour out your heart and there'll be somebody else who will pour along with you. And go deeper than just circumstances. Say, these circumstances are taking me to a place of dependence upon you where I call out to you to restore the vibrancy of my humanity. Another hard habit, there's scripture. There's single-heartedness, there's supplication. But there's also the heart habit of stewardship. Steward, yeah, we're stewards, it's not our own. We're taking care of our time, our abilities, but also our financial resources. And this is particularly what I'm thinking of with this one. Right, stewardship with my finances guards my heart against something that is eroding our culture. We're the most materialistic culture in history. We define happiness and we define success in terms of stuff. And we're clutching on to stuff. We're pursuing stuff. At what price? To my heart. I love the story of the little boy who was at his grandmother's house. His, his hand got stuck in a vase, depending on what part of the country you're from. It might have been a vase. But it was one of these really expensive grandmother things. Couldn't get his hand out. Everybody gathers around. They start pouring some water in it. That's not enough. They put Vaseline in there. Hopefully it doesn't happen. He is starting to panic. Finally, they do the unthinkable. They have to get a hammer and break the vase. When they break the vase, they realize what the problem was. There had been a quarter in the vase, and the little boy had picked it up and clutched it in his fist and wouldn't let that quarter go. 
If all he had to do was let it go, and his hand would have slid out, but he held on to it. That vase is our hearts, and the stuff is the quarter. And our hearts grow hard because of stuff. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Some people don't realize that giving and biblical stewardship is a way to unleash my heart from the grip of the materialism monster. When I give it away, it's kind of an in your face, you don't control me. I wanna be generous. Give to a particular ministry in addition to your local church. And people say, I don't know that I'm that passionate about the church or a ministry. Let me tell you something, you give, you'll be more passionate because where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. If I've given, I care. Instead of chasing after all this other stuff, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, we always pay dearly for chasing after what is cheap. When we don't learn the hard habit of stewardship. But one last one is the hard habit of space. Space, not Star Wars space. Room to breathe. It's a way to guard against busyness. We are constantly going, constantly running, constantly dealing with technology. I mean, I just read an article on the plane study at the University of Missouri. People are physiologically attached to their smartphones. If they're on one side of the room and the smartphone is on the other, it starts ringing and they can't answer it, they have physiological blood pressure, perspiration things that happen. Because we're always going. I was just speaking at a convention in Seattle a couple weeks ago. Took a, a walk late afternoon, sunset along the, the water. It was just gorgeous. I went out to the very edge of a, an area of pier, and I, I, there were a bunch of people there. I thought, man, they, uh, this is the place to be for a sunset. And I'm going out just to, 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 to give myself some space. And I looked around, I counted 24 people. Of those 24, 23 were on their phones. Ah, sunset, <laughs> I got a text here. <laughs> Be still. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, guard, take heart. The way to take heart, be still, wait for the Lord, have space. Psalm 37, verse 7, be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him. Just three verses earlier, Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. But most of us are never still long enough to know what the desires of our heart are. We're not engaging with beauty. We're not engaging with stillness. We're not engaging with prayer. We're moving constantly and our hearts are shriveling because we're not realizing life while, while we're living it. Our Town is one of my favorite plays by the playwright Thornton Wilder. The play is about a small turn of the century town, turn of last century, Grover's Corners, New Hampshire. 
In Act 1, we get to know two families, the Gibbs and the Webbs. Act 2, we get to know George and Emily's romance, and they get married. Act 3 opens in the play in the cemetery on the hill above town. Emily has just died too young in childbirth. Wilder was specific about how to set up the stage. He said, set up the stage with just chairs on a plain stage and the townspeople that have died sitting in those chairs and they can converse with one another. So we overhear the, the conversations of the occupants of the graveyard. Emily discovers in this dialogue that's managed by the stage manager who's part of the audience but explains to us what's going on. She discovers that she can revisit a day from her life if she would like to, but all the people in the graveyard tell her, don't do it. She rejects their counsel. She goes back to relive her 12th birthday. And she can only endure part of it because after a while she starts realizing all the stuff that she missed and did not appreciate and didn't enter into and it was haunting. She goes back to the cemetery and she in exasperation asks a question. It's more a statement than a question. She just calls out, cries out to the stage manager, do human beings ever realize life while they're living it every, every minute? because she realized she hadn't. And she wondered, is there anybody else doing it? Anybody else accomplished that in their life? Stage manager replies, no. Then he modifies it, well, saints and poets, perhaps. Some do. Jesus has summoned you alive if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not yet, he's beckoning. And it is not just to give us something to do on a Sunday morning. It's not to give us some new box to check on our senses, calling ourselves Christian. It's not even just to get us to heaven, although that's glorious and beautiful. It is, goes far deeper than that. He wants to restore, make our hearts new, and then begin to shape them so that we can experience life, not just heart beating life, but this fullness of life with a capital L in order to image him and be fulfilled as human beings and reflect him to the world. He has brought the gospel into your life so that you and I can realize life while we live it. The gospel is good news. It's not just a religious information tract. So let's thank him for that right now. Absolutely. Let's stand together and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the way that you've raised us from the dead. Now, some of us, if we're followers of Jesus, we've been raised from the dead, but we're not experiencing that life with a capital L. Others of us are not yet followers of Jesus, but we can hear a summons from, a life-giving summons from you. So Jesus, right now, as we close with this liturgy that we're about to sing, May we not sing from the back of our throats, but may we sing from the core of our hearts.